You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with a brand new guest this week. But before we jump into that, don't forget, uh, if you like what we're doing here, give us a nice five-star rating, review, and share with a friend. As an independent podcast, that's the best way for us to get in front of new listeners. Also, for all things Deconstructionist, check out our website at www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you'll find links to our social media, blog, web store, Patreon, and our entire back catalog of episodes that you can stream for free from the website. This week's guest is Dr. Muhammad Khalil. Dr. Khalil is Professor of Religious Studies, Director of the Muslim Studies Program, and Adjunct Professor in the College of Law at Michigan State University. His specialty is Islamic thought, and much of his research revolves around Muslim conceptions of and interactions with non-Muslims. He's also the author of several books, including Islam and the Fate of Others, The Salvation Question, and Jihad, Radicalism, and the New Atheism. And an all-around awesome guy. He was really fun to talk to. Uh, Fascinating backstory of how he went from dental school to becoming a religion professor. And um, hopefully this is just overall just a very educational episode and a way uh, that just points at how we could all uh, be better to one another and um, just in general, like dispelling a lot of the uh, misconceptions between religions. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Muhammad Khalil. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have my guest on today. Welcome, Dr. Muhammad Khalil. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, we, we should probably take a second uh, to make sure that we differentiate between you and, and some other, uh, other individuals with the same name. Uh, you work, well, I mean, I guess we can kind of tie this into your intro. Uh, tell mm-hmm. people a little bit about your work and, and what you do for a living. Sure, sure. So my full name is Muhammad Hassan Khalil, uh, or in Arabic, Muhammad Hassan Khalil. And uh, I am a professor of religious studies at Michigan State University. And I also direct the Muslim Studies program at Michigan State. And I'm also an um, affiliated faculty in the College of Law. And I teach courses on Islam. And uh, 
I work kind of close to where I was born. I was born and raised in this uh, part of Michigan. Uh, in, I was born in Lansing, raised in East Lansing. Uh, my father was a professor of electrical engineering at Michigan State. My mother has had various jobs. She also has a degree from Michigan State in business. Uh, so I, I'm kind of back to kind of back where I started. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, uh, I actually, um, my, my life path was an interesting one in the sense that I actually spent some time in dental school. Uh, and because of 9-11, I ultimately left uh, dental school uh, and went into my current field. Wow, that that's actually something I was going to comment on. Um, you know, part of the reason we're having I asked you to come on. Um, obviously, uh, listeners who have been around for a little while know that we've done a series in the past, years and years back, um, trying to bring representation on from from other faith traditions, other religions, um, to largely kind of educate and dispel certain uh, misnomers. And um, I remember I was in my undergrad, I was in college when nine eleven occurred, and. Um, you know, I, I just recall there being a lot of obviously news coverage, and anytime something like that happens, uh, you know, the easy reaction is to demonize. You know, uh, find 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 the bad guy, find some somebody to demonize. Um, you know, while we're just in our feelings in the moment, and, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but some of the negative impact of that obviously is that you know, there are a lot of innocent people who get wrongly accused of things that you know have nothing to do with them. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's really interesting. So what kind of drove you to make that career change? What were you seeing, I guess, yeah. that made you Yeah, change? well, you know, I mean, 9-11 was such a challenging moment because, you know, I, I was born and raised here. I'm American, but I also have family in Egypt and I was born and raised Muslim, uh, still am Muslim. And so, um, you know, you just kind of you felt like you were being pulled in a lot of different directions and, you know, you, on the one hand, you have your fellow, you know, my fellow Americans that I grew up with, my friends that I grew up with, uh, and they're looking at people who look like me uh, in a very negative way. And then I'm also, you know, you know, I remember before 9-11, I'd be, you know, really um, embarrassed if there was some negative news story about Muslims, because I knew people were going to be talking about it. And 9-11 was the ultimate bad thing to happen in an American context um, on American soils, uh, you know, at that point. And so it was really challenging trying to navigate through that. And ultimately, I was always interested in religious studies. I was always interested in the big questions of life, you could say. Uh, but I, my impression was you don't actually, that's not a real f- field to go into. That's not a real career path because it's so hard to find a job. And so, but when I was in dental school, I was really only in it for the money. My orthodontist <laughs> retired at 39, making $3 million a year. And I was, I was like, okay, that's perfect. I can retire early and then study Islam and religion and philosophy and all that stuff. But uh, ultimately, I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I would skip my dental school classes and attend lectures on philosophy, uh, a lecture on the life of Jesus, a lecture on Islamic uh, thought. And, and I just could not. Um, sit there and look at teeth all day with all due respect to dentists. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, and my undergraduate degree was actually in Arabic and Islamic studies. So, uh, you know, I just took the, the courses to fulfill the, requ- the prerequisites for dental school. Uh, so anyway, so it was kind of, it was very natural actually for me to, to go into religious studies after that. 
Uh, and, you know, it got to, I was at a point where I, I was, when I finally got a job as a professor, I, w- I was surprised. You're going to pay me to do this? I mean, this is what I love to do. This is great. Uh, so it was, um, ultimately, I'm glad I made the, the, that very difficult decision. So, you know, obviously, like there was some motivation behind, you know, switching career fields. uh, And I I would assume part of that motivation was, you know, to to educate people because of the way that you were sort of interacting with society and the way in which they were kind of, you know, looking at you like, I don't know about this guy, you know, and and all this Mm -hmm. all this weird backlash that happened. And we've seen this again, by the way, you know, we've we saw this after the pandemic with Asian-Americans kind of taking the brunt of that frustration over the fact that, you know, this, this virus, you know, they think came from China. And so, yes. And so what, what was kind of your intent? What was your, um, your goal, I guess, uh, when, yeah, good question. Switching? Well, part of it is, yeah, part of it is I wanted to educate. I wanted to, you know, to, to, um, provide correctives to what, what I saw as clearly misinformation, but, but, you know, part of it also was, I wanted to know, I wanted to understand what is going on. Um, you know, because there is there was this narrative that Usama bin Laden, he's a real Muslim. And all you other Muslims are wishy-washy, apologetic, liberal Muslims who don't really understand the religion. And so I wanted to take that claim and interrogate it and, and really um, spend grapple with it. And I wanted to understand you know, am I missing something? Because this is not the Islam I grew up with. My father was the president of our, our Islamic center. My mother has a degree in Islamic studies, uh, actually in Islamic law, to be precise, uh, from an Islamic university. So, and, and we were always, you know, you know, there's nothing unusual about us. So I, I didn't, I, you know, did we get it wrong? Did he, did Bin Laden get it wrong? I wanted to understand. Um, and uh, and that's, I think, why 9-11 ends up, being on the first page of both of the books that I've authored, I have one book looking at the question: Do do Muslim, what do Muslims say about the fate of non-Muslims in the afterlife? And the other issue is the issue of jihad and extremism, and looking at how some, in this case, new atheist writers talk about Islam and jihad. And and so 9/11 is right there on the first page in, in both books. Just as I just was reflecting on this recently, I, I noticed that. And so, and I just made a documentary on 9-11. I, I, I'm finishing a documentary with, with two other uh, filmmakers um, looking at a, 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 um, a, a U.S. Muslim named Salman Hamdani who uh, went out of his way to try to save people's lives on 9-11. And, um, and initially there was suspicion that maybe he was a terrorist himself because he was missing. But then they found his body next to uh, like a first aid kit. Uh, and so... Um, you know, so so it's just it's something that has really shaped my life uh, in in a and, and so I want to be very careful how I word this. It was obviously you know it was it's a day that um, remains to this moment very devastating, um, but it's also a, a, a motivator. It motivated me to to understand what's going on. To if there's if there's misinformation, I want to correct that misinformation. Uh, and actually, what was interesting is in doing research, I was able to see clear examples of someone like Osama bin Laden um, twisting the tradition. And so I was able to confirm my suspicions, um, but they were suspicions. I had to be very careful, right? Because you don't want to have your suspicions guide your your research. 
you want to be as, as objective as is humanly possible, recognizing that it's ultimately impossible. <laughs> but um, I want, but I, I was able to identify moments where he was, where he twists the, the narrative. And that I think was actually, um, it was eye opening, and it was kind of what I had been, what I was had always been wanting to 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 look into and understand. So, so go into that a little bit. What what were some of the things that you, as you did the research, started to uncover about just yeah. the way in which he was twisting it, as you said? Absolutely. Well, first, let me say it was a very disturbing research project. I mean, mm. imagine it's two in the morning, my family's sleeping, and I'm sitting here looking at. ISIS magazines and, and Bin Laden statements. It was a very disturbing project. But in any case, I'll give you one, one clear example. Um, in trying to justify 9-11, Bin Laden has an interview with Al Jazeera. Uh, and the interview was shortly after the attacks, but they were, the interview was aired a couple of months later, I believe. And in that interview... Bin Laden is trying to justify the attacks. He says, I know in our religion, we're not supposed to kill innocent people. And by the way, he never out and out says, I did it, but it's implied, you could say, in that interview. Um, so he, he, he never, so he, he says, I know we're not supposed to kill innocent people. However, if an enemy kills our innocent people, and he uses the term women and children, if an enemy targets our women and children, then we can target their women and children. And this is based on the views of, and he goes on to mention four Islamic scholars. I'll mention their names very briefly. Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, both are from the 14th century CE. You have al-Shawkani, who is, I think, in the 19th century. Uh, and then you have um, al-Qurtubi, uh, and I want to say 14th century, roughly. Um, and uh, he mentions Al-Qurtubi. And, and, and he actually takes a moment to praise Al-Qurtubi. Al-Qurtubi is a very famous exegete or commentator on the Qur'an. And so he mentions these scholars to justify his claim that if, an, that if somebody targets women and children in your community, you can now target their women and children. And what was remarkable about that is that I remember thinking, wow, I don't, I've studied these four scholars. I don't remember them ever saying this. And what was truly remarkable is not, is not only did they not say it, one, the one that Bin Laden took a moment to praise, or actually he, he asked for God's mercy, uh, is this, it's something that one commonly says for somebody who's passed away, like rest in peace, basically. Hmm. The person he took a moment to highlight, Al-Qurtubi, explicitly says the exact opposite in his commentary on Surah 5 or Chapter 5 of the Qur'an, verse 8. Al-Qurtubi explicitly says, and he even uses the same terminology, if, an, if, some, if somebody targets our women and children, we are not allowed to target their women and children, even if it caused us great harm. And when I saw this, I couldn't believe it, because usually you don't find something this clear-cut, this obvious, you know, usually you find something that you could dispute. And no, this was uh, like clearly the exact opposite of what Bin Laden was claiming. So that's, that's, that's a, I think, the best example I can come up with, actually. That, that, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, uh, and, it, and, you know, it, there's, there's certainly clear parallels uh, in terms of examples that I could find within Christianity where, where someone twists, you know, uh, a scholar's interpretation of, of Christian scripture as well. 
uh, to, mm-hmm. to use it for some you know, nefarious means. So, I mean, we see this, mm-hmm. we're, we're certainly guilty of that too. <laughs> um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. So one of the things that, you know, I mentioned at the top is uh, obviously, you know, we are sort of cousins in terms of, you know, from a religious standpoint because we are one of the three Abrahamic traditions, obviously, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, so talk a little bit about the history of Islam and, and sort of where we sort of branched off at, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, as we know in the Bible, Abraham has two very famous sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and, and presumably other children as well. But these are the, the two famous ones. And Ishmael, according to the Bible, um, is you know is, is going to be a father of a great nation and so on, but not but is not sort of celebrated like Isaac. Isaac, of course, has Jacob, and ha- and Jacob, of course, has Joseph, and then you go down the line, you get Moses, and then of course down the line you get Jesus, uh, Moses and Aaron, and then down the line you get Jesus. And uh, in the but on the Ishmael side, um, the Muslim belief is that one of his descendants is Muhammad, Muhammad. And for all of these prophets, Muslims typically say, peace be upon that person. So peace be upon, in this case, Muhammad, peace be upon him. Jesus, peace be upon him. So Muslims believe 
that all of these individuals that I just mentioned are prophets of God, including Jesus, actually. Uh, Jesus is a very special prophet. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, or Maryam in Arabic, is actually mentioned more frequently or a greater number of times than in the entire New Testament. And in fact, there's even a whole chapter called Maryam or Mary, which is chapter 19 or Surah 19 of the Quran. And um, the Quran even talks about how Mary or Maryam was um, basically, cho- you know, is, is the best among the women, basically, uh, among all women, and, and is a role model for all those who are conscious of God, whatever their gender. And so, but with Mary in, in particular, you know, she's so special. And um, it's probably not a coincidence that Maryam, which is Mary in Arabic, is such a popular name. Actually, my first daughter is Maryam. Uh, she's in high school now. And so that's that's my first daughter, you know, and, and um, it's a, it's such a beautiful name. And the story is so beautiful, Mary and Jesus. And actually, I even know some families where, like, I know a family where the oldest, the, the first kid is a daughter. Her name is Maryam. The second kid is a boy. And they named him Isa, which is Jesus in the Quranic Arabic. <laughs> that's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. So, and Jesus is also a very special prophet, a very special individual. Um and, and actually, the Quran even, you know, d- depicts him doing all kinds of amazing miracles uh, and uses certain um, terminology that it does not use with other prophets. And Jesus is actually, peace be upon him, is so special that the prevailing Muslim belief, not that all Muslims believe this, but the vast majority of Muslims believe that Jesus is the one figure who will return before the end of time, believe it or not. Uh, and will even um, confront a kind of antichrist figure who is called the Dajjal in Arabic. Um, so not Muhammad, not Muhammad. Muhammad is very special, seal of the prophets, mercy to the worlds. But Jesus is the prophet who will return before the end of time. And so um, according to, again, to the vast majority of Muslims, I, I have to clarify this point because this point is never explicitly stated in the Quran, but it's in the statements attributed to Muhammad. It's explicit, explicit there. So, um, so yeah, so that's, I think, um, one very special connection. Uh, and there's even a reference, if I'm not mistaken, to the, to the Last Supper. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a surah, surah 5, called Al-Ma'idah, which is like a reference to, the, presumably a reference to that meal. Um, so a lot of similarities. Now, of course, also we have to be honest, major differences as well. Um, one major difference is that Muslims do not believe Jesus is divine, uh, or the son of God. So that's of course an obvious major difference. Um, another major difference is, uh, that, well, first of all, let me throw in a similarity first. Most Muslims, like most, but not all Christians, I understand, believe in a virgin birth. Uh, And and even among Muslims, I'm not going to say 100% believe in a virgin birth, but certainly the vast majority do, based on how they read the Quran. Um, So that's that's another similarity, at least among the, you're looking at the majority of Christians. And again, I realize some Christians don't believe that. Um, Now, uh, going back to another major difference, the issue, I think, of the crucifixion stands out. And, and this is a very, very complicated issue. And I say that because of all the verses in the Quran 
the one that I find to be the most challenging to interpret is the verse about the crucifixion, um, that passage. Um, so it says that it's referring to some of the uh, members of the Jewish community who are saying that they killed Jesus. And the Quran is responding to them, and it says they did not kill Jesus, nor did they crucify him, but it was made to appear like that to them. And then it goes on to make some other statements that I won't get into, but uh, also require a lot of investigation and, and, and contemplation. But in any case, this statement is interesting. Now, is that denying the crucifixion, or is it simply saying that they did not crucify him? This, this particular Jewish community. That is the subject of some interesting de debate and discussion. There are actually some Muslims, for example, some Ismaili Shi'i Muslims, who believe he was actually crucified. And that um, they, you know, and then there even are some Sunnis uh, who will speak of a crucifixion, like Jesus physically being, the body is on the cross, but they didn't get his spirit. Because um, there's another verse in the Quran that talks about the martyrs don't say that they're dead, they're alive, you just don't perceive it. And so based on that logic, Jesus is alive. He, he's not dead. Uh, even if physically they got the body. That, that's, again, one interpretation. Now, there are other interpretations, and some, some even talk about substitutions, like somebody's in Jesus' place on the cross. One very fascinating theory out there is that it's Judas, of all people. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, So you get a wide range of claims, but ultimately um, these are claims that are not easy to resolve. And so there's this openness, and that's why I say it's one of the most, if not the most challenging passage. Uh, to my mind, in the Quran. And it's fascinating, too, because, you know, the crucifixion and the and subsequent resurrection is such an important part of Christianity. And yet here is the Quran just mentioning it in passing in this one verse. And and so now, you know, it's just, it's fascinating and it requires a lot of investigating. And I'm still in the process of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, we're still doing that with a large, you know, with with many places uh, within the, the the Christian Bible. <laughs> There's still a lot of debate, obviously, over a, a, a lot of components within there. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely can uh, identify with that. Um, <laughs> so, talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, I think, misconceptions. I think that would be an interesting thing to dive into. Um, you know, I'll throw out one to, to get us started, but like, I think one of the things I heard, um, because obviously Islam, uh, as a religion, uh, came kind of to the forefront in a way that it hadn't prior to, to nine 11. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't really know much. I, I knew probably, I feel like in a lot of ways, even less after, cause I didn't know what was true and what wasn't. But one of the things that kept coming up, uh, you kept hearing, oh, well, the Quran, um, is just this very violent Book. And I'm like, have you read the Old Testament? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've I've um, gotten a little bit into, uh, you know, uh, world religion studies. And, and I don't think that's true, obviously. But uh, talk yeah. a little bit about, you know, yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the question I was I was grappling with after 9-11. Right. This. So you talk about misconceptions. The issue of violence is, is obviously right there um, because of, well, not just 9-11, but 9-11 is, is the, the thing that really got people talking about this specifically. 
uh, at, at a heightened level. Um, so, yeah, the issue of violence is, is complicated because, first of all, there are passages in the Quran that talk about peace and restraining yourself and passages that talk about warfare. And um, what, what I will say here at the outset is that I would not remain Muslim if I thought that Islam was, um, you know, was promoting wanton violence. So definitely that's something that I can say from my studies. I, 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 do, I do not believe Islam is calling for wanton violence. I believe what Islam is doing is, and I, and I have to be careful with my, the way I speak. When I say Islam is doing, I, my, my colleagues in, my, in religious studies will, will go after me. What do you mean by Islam? <laughs> what, what exactly does that mean? But I'll, I'll say this, the Quran, the Quran as I read it, um, is not calling for wanton violence. I know there are some polemical writers who will promote exactly that claim, that, that the Quran is promoting wanton violence. And what I would just say is, I would encourage those individuals who are saying this and others who, who are just interested in the subject to take the time to read these passages carefully. You know, one of the, one of the challenges is you'll have someone, okay, they'll show you a verse from the Quran. For example, Surah 2, verse 191. Surah 2 or chapter 2, verse 191. And it says, kill them wherever you find them. Clearly a violent passage. But now the question is, did we take the time to read the verses before and after? And, and, and keep in mind, there are other verses that clearly are promoting peace and restraint and so on. So now what's going on here, too? We have to think about the context. What is the context? And first of all, regarding the context, what the reports tell us is that you are dealing with an antagonistic community, primarily in Mecca, that has previously attempted to uh, assassinate Muhammad. It has actually killed some Muslims who were pacifists. Um, for example, the first martyr, most would say, is a woman named Sumeya, who was killed simply for her faith. Um, and so the community actually has to leave Mecca and go to another city called, Med well, later it's going to, going to be called Medina or Yathrib. And so you have this, um, this, these tensions and you have what seems to be a state of war. That's, I mean, that's the way I interpret it. And, um, and so you have this passage, kill them wherever you find them. But the verse before says, fight those who fight you, but do not transgress limits. So so, and actually, if you look at the Arabic root, so the, 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 the word is you are fighting those who are already in a state of warfare with you. They're already fighting you. Um, whereas before, when they were in Mecca, Muslims were not allowed to fight. They had to be pacifists. But now that they're in Medina and now that they are responsible for a community, the Quran says, how can you not, in another passage, how can you not uh, defend basically these men, women, and children who are looking for, to you for protection. Um, so the Quran is not calling for absolute pacifism, although it was doing it was calling for pacifism when it, when Muslims were just individuals in Mecca. So as an individual, yes, I restrain, I, I hold back. But now that I, I am responsible for a community, and I'm dealing with people who are already antagonistic. 
okay, now we have this violent passage, but it's but but even this violent passage is preceded by fight those who fight you, but do not transgress limits. And what are the limits? This is now where you get into all kinds of statements like, you know, do not kill women, do not kill children. Actually, this statement, do not kill women and children, is considered one of the 500 most reliable statements attributed to the Prophet that we have. And then the Prophet Muhammad. And then we have other statements like do not kill the farmer or the monk or the person who, who's there on the battlefield just doing, you know, just like a servant who's just doing, you know, you know paid labor. Uh, and so you, ha- you, you have all these um, qualifications, basically. And, um, and then you have other passages that say, even late in Muhammad's life, that, for example, um, it talks, there's a passage, Surah 8, uh, verses 60 to 61. There's a passage about fighting, but then it goes on to say, but if they incline toward peace, you incline toward peace. In other words, the, the default is peace. You want, you want there to be peace. But if they are already in a state of, of an antagonism, uh, then you, you, at that point, you are now responsible for a community. You, so now it's okay to defend yourselves. Now, having said that, I should also point out that the tensions with the Meccan uh, polytheists of Mecca, the polytheists of Mecca specifically, uh, reached a point where um, conquest was the is what basically what ended the conflict, uh, and it was a kind of uh, a fairly nonviolent conquest, actually, relatively we'll say relatively nonviolent conquest of Mecca. Beyond this, now we're going to see a lot of debate as to how should Muslim communities function after this period, after the death of the Prophet? Should Muslims conquer lands and and spread? Certainly we saw a lot of that after Muhammad dies. But keep in mind, there are Muslims who disagree with this, who think this should not have happened this way. And, um, and, And those who, but even those who talk about spreading and conquering, even these Muslims... You know, they're living in a pre-United Nations world where the assumed state of relations between nations is one of war unless you have a truce or a treaty. And so even those who speak of conquest, they will in many cases modify their views in a modern when thinking about the modern context. And even these people are not usually opposed. They are usually not uh, OK with terrorism. Uh, so, so, so the, the complicated thing I think is when it comes to this issue of, you know, um, conquest and the spread, the political spread, uh, you'll find a lot of interesting debates there, but as for targeting innocent civilians, uh, this is where you will find historically Muslims across the board, overwhelmingly opposed to this kind of what we see basically with ISIS and and Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda, um, those kinds of attacks clearly, clearly um, rejected by the majority. And when we actually look at polling data, we see that Muslims overwhelmingly rejected 9-11. And now having said that, I'll also say, and this is a long-winded answer, but I'll I'll just throw in one more thing here. There's a poll that was taken by Gallup. Uh, I think it was published in 2009. And in that poll, they asked Muslims in, third, I think, you know, dozens of countries, tens of thousands of Muslims, the biggest poll ever taken after 
what do you think about the 9-11 attacks? And overwhelmingly, people were opposed to it, either completely opposed or maybe they were partially opposed. But in general, there was, um, there, there, there was, there was not uh, acceptance of what happened. Having said that, 7% in the poll thought the attacks were justifiable. That's an alarming number when you think about the population of Muslims. I mean, Muslims are almost 2 billion people now. So 7% is a lot of people. So that is very alarming. But here's what I think is interesting. When Gallup went a step further and asked, why do you think is justifiable? So they did this in Indonesia, for example, the country with the largest Muslim population on the planet, right? Many people think it's Saudi Arabia or Iran, but it's Indonesia. And what was interesting is the people who condemned the attacks often gave religious reasons. Those who justified the attacks often gave political or non-religious reasons. Um, in fact, not one person cited the Qur'an or a, a statement attributed to Muhammad or anything like that to justify the 9-11 attacks in Indonesia when they did this poll. And the last thing I'll say, because <laughs> every time I say something, I'm imagining people now responding, well, what about this? What about that? One more thing I'll say. This is not to deny the role of religion in what happened on 9-11. Bin Laden, I believe, did believe in religion, did believe in a particular interpretation of Islam. I believe that. What I would also say, though, is that it was not the Islam, the historical Islam, or the prevailing you know, interpretation or understanding of Islam today. Uh, it was a kind of aberrant, strange Islam predicated on, well, just to give these, like the example I mentioned earlier, misinformation, um, you know, twisting of the sources. So there, there is a religious component. It's just not a, re a, a religion that's representative of the vast majority of Muslims. Does God have a faith? Did he have to have blood before he 
If God has a face, her face must look like yours. A face like a Tina, an Ahmed or Mildred, a Russ and his husband, Gus and their children. Like a Kim, a Ted or Tyrone, a Lucy born with an extra chromosome, a Pablo with legs he can't move by himself, a girl born a Daniel who now is Danielle, a Bill Agent Yee, even white guys named Todd. If you You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save 